Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. Okay, guys. Oh, that's good. Don't have any people. Here's somebody else. Um, what'd y'all think of that first one? I loved to hear. I loved the the conversations went better than I thought. I'll tell you why in a minute. What what, what did y'all think? Who said this? What were some of the? Uh, just blurted out both tables. Who said this? What were some of your ideas? And don't tell me if you th- if you know who it is. That's not what I'm interested in. Who were the people you thought could have said this? Okay. Okay, I see. You're right. Yeah, I can see that. So he would be thinking, but in that sense, theologically, he's just thinking of inward or personal feeling of the Spirit. Okay, well, well, for good doubt that you're doing that for a minute. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but no, I'm really interested in the use of this language in our world. So you, you, you brought up a wonderful example where... In that instance, it's it would just be this idea of this sort of democratized, free spirit, free access. access to the spirit by every individual in this boundless way, and and yeah, I got you. That's good. A kind of tr- uh, the whole transformationalist spirituality, which we would affirm to some degree. Okay, but that's one. Who else? Who else could have said this? Come on, you got to tell me who you were thinking back there. That's what I was so interested in. Okay. Just the monism is you're describing what I would describe as monism, which is the whole Eastern spirituality of the spirit that's everywhere, boundless, and so a kind of. Uh, you know, we used to call it New Age. Okay. All right. Hey. So keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. So I hear a couple of things going on. On the one hand, the spiritualist, the sort of New Ageist, monistic, Eastern spirituality. But then you went to the other extreme of kind of a, a materialist, which is that they're looking for what? Where did you see that in this? A chemical reaction of some sort. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, transfuses. You're you're almost looking at a transfusion, or yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Who else could have said this? You think? What? Well, who's this kind of sound like? Yeah. So, yeah. So if you're thinking sacraments, this would sound like something under Roman Catholic, what we call transubstantiation, the idea that the very materiality becomes the flesh of Christ, and now we have this eating of the flesh of Christ literally kind of idea, right? Well, you know, as you probably know, 
Um, I, I did this precisely to show you that uh, this is the Calvinist of all Calvinists, John Calvin. Uh, and, and most would not think of him as being someone who would say something like this. But he had a very high sacramentology. In fact, I would argue that Calvin's critique of the Roman Catholic Church was they were not sacramental enough. That they had, they had uh, uh, introduced this intermediary between us and Christ but vis-a-vis this transubstantiation doctrine that kept us apart from each other and conveniently Calvin would argue introduced the authority of the Roman Catholic Church to control it all so here we are here Christ is by the mystery of the spirit and in the middle is this transubstantiation doctrine of which only a priest can do it and only a priest can do it in a certain context which means you know, you got, you, and it's got to be Roman because no other church could do it but Rome because they're the only true church. You can see where this is going. But he, he would, um, this, this next quote kind of gets through a little bit more of what he means. And we're going to read a lot of John Calvin today. I put it in your thing, as you noticed. Because I do think a lot of us, if you were introduced to Presbyterianism from, say, a kind of southern context of, of the P, of PCA, Many churches in the PCA that are now Presbyterian came from Baptist context. And oftentimes, this would be viewed, a statement like this would be heard and go, oh, no, that's not what we believe. Even if we would confess that we believe in the spiritual, you know, that there's a spiritual presence of Christ. But listen to what he says. We acknowledge without any circumlocution, that means it doesn't go around, it doesn't, it's not, you know, what that means, right? That, that, that without, without talking around, you know, without it uh, avoiding it, we're not avoiding it, that we acknowledge without any circumstance that the flesh of Christ is life-giving. Not only because once in, our, in it our salvation was obtained, now everybody would have said that one, right? But yeah, the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ is life-giving, and we'd be thinking of incarnation, the ministry of Christ when he lived 2,000 years ago and he died on a cross. And all of that, and resurrection, the bodily resurrection, all that. He's not talking about that. He says, no, not just then, once our soul was attained, but because now we are being united to him in sacred union. It breathes life into us. Because being by the power of the Spirit engrafted into the body of Christ, we have a common life with him. For from the hidden fountain of divinity, life is, in a wonderful way, infused into the flesh of Christ, and thence flows out to us. Again, Christ is absent from us to the body by his spirit. However, dwelling in us, he so lifts us to himself in heaven that he transfuses the life-giving vigor of his flesh into us as we grow by vital heat of the sun. Now, what's he saying here? What do you hear from that statement? Is there a real conferring of life-transforming power by virtue of a unionization, now I'll put that word out there, with Christ. Did you hear that? Is that summary good enough? Are we united to Christ in some mystical way wherein we are given life through that? We are. Now, I'm going to talk about this later. I hope it's in this uh, handout. I can't remember if it is, but one of the things that happened um, around the 19th century in America was 
many seminaries turned to a scholastic reformed thinker called Tertullian um, and replaced Calvin. Is it Tertullian? Hold on, I always get, who's the first one and who's the later one? Um, hold on, I think I got that wrong. I'm blanking here. Anyway, you, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let's don't go off to that anyway. I'm glad I stopped. Um, so the, the point I just want you to hear now is we got to talk about sacraments and the Presbyterian understanding of it. And I suspect that, that it's going to feel a little uncomfortable, you know, if you are on the one hand reacting against Roman Catholicism or if on the other hand you're reacting against this sort of uh, charismatic Pentecostal idea. And we're going to have to see where this comes together without being either of those. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Yes, I think it, in the mystery of the Holy Spirit's uniting Christ's flesh with the body of Christ, there is this union of Christ's flesh by the Spirit, transfusion life into the body of Christ, the flesh of the body of Christ. That's correct. So there's the two fleshes united by the Spirit, and thus you have this union. That's what he's going to say. Well, by virtue of the, the power that is at work within, with, and through the body of Christ and the sacramental union that we... I like the word sacramental union because it's, it's a unique kind of union. It could be described as a mystical communion with Christ. It could be described as, you know, other things. Presence, real presence, but spiritual. But, um, but we'll get into it. We're going to get it. We're going to read some Calvin. We're going to do some reading of Calvin today just so you can read his own language. How would you explain the difference in function, then, between baptism and the Lord's Supper? What would you all say? How are they different? Entrance and renewal. Well, that's a good, good orthodox answer. How would a lot of people see it in the world? Would they see a difference? Maturity, age, knowledge. Maybe. Depending on your tradition, yeah. Could be. That would be a one who baptizes children. But talk to me about a Baptist. How would a Baptist hear this? Go ahead, Gary. Yeah. So baptism is, but what's the function of baptism over against the function? How does it function in the life of, of our salvation? So there's a bit of a witness function. But the Lord's Supper isn't a witness? A remembrance. So the baptism is a witness. You're, you, they would, so you think that they would say witness and remembrance. All right. What else? Anybody else? W when do you get baptized if you're, say, a Baptist? When you believe. You've got to have a credible profession of faith. When do you commit, partake of the Lord's Supper if you're a Baptist? When you have a credible profession of faith. <laughs> okay, so the entrance is the same. Um, when, how often do you do baptism versus the Lord's Supper in a Baptist church, typically? You do once baptism, good, and you would do Lord's Supper or whatever, yeah, something. Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I suspect there's a whole range. Okay, but the key is, is what's lost, what I'm getting at is, is one view is going to see baptism like 
circumcision being a converting ordinance or an entrance ordinance. It's something that enters you or converts you into Christ and therefore admits you into the body of Christ. Whereas the other one is a confirmation and, and renewal kind of a, of a, of a presence, a function. So that's, that's helpful. For the typical evangelical, what is feared regarding the practice of infant baptism? I think this is a, a, an understandable and valid fear, by the way. But if you're an evangelical, what, what scares you a little bit about it, the practice of infant baptism? Does it work? <laughs> okay. Okay. So we're, the fear is that, okay, you know, build on that. So it, it doesn't work. So you got to get baptized again, huh? Okay. Anybody else? Okay, that's true. So what are you afraid of? So the baptism is, what are you afraid of about infant baptism? Ah, so, so where where I hear you saying is it would give a false sense of assurance. Is that right? A false sense of assurance, i.e., I've been baptized as a child, I'm, I, I must go to heaven. It, it's dead orthodoxy. Now, let's admit that's a very good fear. That would be a very legitimate fear to, for us to make the equation necessarily, there's that word, necessarily that to be baptized is to be saved. We would say, gosh, that's that, you know, so you grow up in the church, you do these little rites, you go through the church, you do rites, that at 12 years old you do your first Holy Communion, and after your first Holy Communion, it's all right, and you're a Christian, and, you know, one day you're going to go back when you need it and get buried, and you'll go to heaven. All producing a kind of, what does the Scripture say must happen for us to be a Christian? We've got to be born again. We believe in conversion. So, honestly, a legitimate concern is that there could be a possible way that we would utilize infant baptism that, would, that, could, uh, that could deny conversional spirituality, which would be to deny what doctrine. Now, you guys should be such, you should be really amazing theologians by now. So what doctrine would it be denying, in effect, in our confession, order salutis? What doctrine would we be denying? What is it? What is a essential element of the gospel relative to what must happen if you think through the different chapters of our confession of faith? And it relates to one must be born again. How are we born again? No, that's how we're justified. How are we born again? Regeneration. And what is that doctrine called that, that in our confession? There it is. Effectual calling. The work of Christ, I mean, the work of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to believe in saving faith, which is to assent to, receive, and rest upon the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as promised in the Scripture. And so without effectual calling, you're not saved. Without being born again, in other words, you're not saved. 
I'm saying what? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. No, I am saying they can be regenerate. But to, to equate necessarily, I keep underlining that word necessarily, to equate necessarily that to be baptized is necessarily to be effectually called would deny what that we're waiting for to discern that. What should we be looking for? To, what is the evidence of, of being effectually called? Is it being baptized necessarily? No. What is the evidence of it? Saving faith. Our, the chapter in our confession is called saving. Remember we talked about why it says saving, not just faith. Saving faith. It's saving faith. And saving faith is discerning our sin and our original sin. It's, you don't have to use the word, but discerning that, hey, I got a real problem here. It's not just my, that I want a, uh, you know, a, a motorcycle when I should want it or something. It's, I, I have a problem with God. I reject him as my Lord. And it's, it's really deep, and it's, it's dark. Somehow you get, get in touch with yourself that way in a manner that enables you to see your need for a Savior and want it, and therefore you receive it. You receive the promise of the gospel in, the, in, in Jesus Christ and rest upon it. All of that describes saving faith, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith is a gift of God. Okay, so you see what you're doing. I'm telling you, you know, you really want to go through... And I would encourage you as we come towards the end to go through each category of doctrine and notice the progression of it. Notice how it progresses you into different things. And you're going to start weaving together this web of theology we keep talking about. And you're going to see how one thing complements another thing and complements another thing. Well, here, what will be scary is if you ripped the doctrine of baptism out of that order of doctrines so as to annul what we believe is essential to salvation, which is effectually calling. And, and, and wanting to discern effectual calling by a credible profession of faith, which is why now you have two functions. Baptism enters you into the mediatorial presence of Christ, wherein you are outwardly engrafted into Christ vis-a-vis -vis the church, awaiting confirmation that the means of grace that God has given in the church will eventually be used of the Spirit to do effectual calling in a person's life, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But I just wanted to get in touch with the fact that there are, you know, this, these three questions have done exactly what I hoped they would. I, I, I didn't think there would be that great of questions, but actually it's accomplished a lot because you see there's a lot of dross. There's a lot of, of false doctrines looming here that we need to be avoiding. And this is where you have to be a little more careful theologically and precise. And one of the things I'd love to see happening in this church is us be more precise in the way we talk theologically. I mean, these categories, really you ought to memorize them. Use these words. Effectual calling is a very precise way of saying regeneration. Um, you know, uh, justification. These are, these are good words. I would use them. <laughs> and, and you'll see how they protect you from against a lot of things. Well, with that, I'm going to open up in prayer or ask someone to open up in prayer. Um, Gary, would you mind?
Amen. Thank you, Gary. Um, so like I said, we should be getting comfortable with some of this language because we've been talking about the doctrine of the church. And remember, especially about the church, we, we asked that question that our confession asked, which is the, about the visible church, it says, out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. And remember, we talked about how can it say that? It, that is a, what I'd use the word, ontological statement. That is not just a, it's a good, it's a good association of people. It's, it, it's a, you know, but no, it, it obviously there's something about the nature of the church itself. It's very nature that makes it salvific to the extent that out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And you remember that we discern that to be the very real and divine, life-transforming, life-giving presence of Jesus Christ. There is, there is a temple-ness to the church that means we define the church not only by what we do, but by what it is. It is the mediatorial body of Christ. It is the mediatorial body of Christ. I want to say it about 100 times. Mediatorial body of Christ. And if, we, if we're thinking about that, now you hear Calvin coming through your ear, don't you? The mediatorial body of Christ. What does that mean? Um, well, that brings us into the sacramental uh, theology. Because how you view the sacraments is going to necessarily determine how you view the church and her nature. And we would say the church by her nature, just to review, is both a covenantal community and a temple community. Interdependent, the, the covenant regulates, defines, proclaims everything about Christ as its, and its templeness. The temple is the very reality of Christ's presence and how that, is, how that presence is real in order to enliven the covenant. So covenant without temple and temple without covenant redemptive history, both were in bad place. They come together always. Uh, there's never been a time in all redemptive history when God's people were saved apart from a covenant. Starts with Adam. There's never been a time in all redemptive history where God's people were saved without a temple. Happened in Eden. And it kept going. And so that's the idea there. Now you begin to get John Calvin. So let's go to it. Per the above question, some Reformation context to our confession is useful, especially as it introduces us to the Westminster language, which, as we will see, is very Calvinistic. And Calvin is very, he, he, was a, he relied on a lot of mystics, believe it or not, uh, but he's going to go back to Augustine, of course, like all of them do. In other words, how do you think John Calvin would answer the above question about the uniquely salvific quality of the church? In other words, Calvin... What does it mean that, G, that, that there's no ordinary possibility of salvation in the church? This is my family going ballistic. This is what they do. It was so funny. I saw something on CNN doing that, and i got to just turn this thing off because they will just, once they go, they just go. There you go. It'll go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so if we were to ask John Calvin, Calvin, how is it that there's no ordinary possibility outside of the church? What is so special about the church? He would answer with the quote that you gave. No extent of space. You've got to understand something about this church. You, there's nowhere else you can go like this. This is a place where there is no extent of space that interferes with the boundless energy of the Spirit which transfuses life into us from the flesh of Christ. There is a mystic communion, mystic union of sorts going on here. 
So what does this say then about the uniqueness of the church? Notice again how Calvin's words this in his classic treatise on the Lord's Supper insofar as we are introduced to the concept of sacrament. So what I'm going to let you do is let y'all read it. Do y'all have some, can y'all see the words up here or can you see them on your own? If you have called it up, I'll make them as big as I can. Could we just take turns and, and just, anybody that can read it, if you could just start. Let's read that, let's go one paragraph at a time. So the key point there is that he tells us that the substance, what are you eating? What are you eating when you eat the Lord's Supper and drink the Lord's Supper? Calvin says, you're eating Jesus Christ. He's the substance. Now, that's going to, whoa, really? I mean, Calvin said that? I thought he wasn't Roman Catholic. Well, he's not. But there's got to be, but don't overreact here. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Next. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> what is Calvin saying there? If the Lord is not the substance of the, of the supper, can I use the words of uh, the great novelist? Um, I wrote it. Huh? Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers. Did anybody read the little article that I've put together on that? To the hell with it. That's what she said. Just to, if he ain't there, then the hell with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Calvin's saying. To the hell with it. I mean, wh why are we going to do this stupid little thing if we don't think something's happening here? You know, you can talk about, you don't need this supper to remember the Lord's death, if that's all we're doing. It's great, it's a great remembrance, and that is what we're doing. But hey, I could come up with a lot of ways to do it, maybe. You know, let's dramatize it, let's have a play, let's do this, let's do that. But there's something different about this. And the language when Christ instituted, you'll see, is, is very deeply, it's not do this, you know, and he does do this remembers me, but it's beyond that. Another place, like in John, it's, it's you know, eat this, and, and this is my flesh. And what does he mean by that? And you could say, well, he's just talking figuratively. Well, really? How do you know? You know? And so there's something going on here. And so Calvin's saying that, to hell with it, if, it's, if he's not present. Next. All right, so, but you have these, now you've got something very interesting here. 
you got this language of a spiritual, underline spiritual, mystery. And it's somehow tied to these outward signs. And he describes the sign as what? A kind of visible signs as the bread is distributed to us by the hand. Now, it's interesting because he's, you, I mean, I, don't, I should have put it here. But there's a great context where, where uh, St. Saint, Saint Augustine, um, on the one hand, wants to speak of the reality of Christ's substance in the Lord's Supper. But then he's mocking those who would think that the substance is something that would come by chomping down on it with our teeth. And I, I don't know how the Catholics have missed that because they claim him to be their, their source of, of their doctrine of transubstantiation. But it's, uh, it's a great one, and he mocks it. And that's exactly what Calvin's saying here. He's saying, look, you know, there's this sort of uh, visible sign as the bread is distinguished to us by the hand. Hold on, I'm down at the next one, aren't I? Let's read that one while we're there. Somebody read that one. We must confess then. So here's this tangible, visible bread that is still bread, and yet in eating and partaking of this sacrament, Christ is communicated to us. And by communication now, he doesn't mean, you know, a verbal. He he means there's a union, communicate, union, communion, communicate. You see what I'm saying? So, So what's going on here? I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like Calvin's talking through two sides of his mouth. Exactly. You know, on the one hand, there's this visible sign that is handed to you with your hand, with the, the with the mere hand. It's a from flesh to flesh it comes to us. On the other hand, it's a spiritual mystery, which cannot be seen with the eyes or comprehended by human understanding. He's comfortable with that. Are you? Have we become so modernist and rationalistic that if we can't comprehend it in our brain, it can't happen. It can't exist. See, he is. He is pre-modern here in a delightful way. Um, notice then how Calvin will call, qualify all this, both as to distinguish between the Roman position but also the Baptist position. To distinguish Christ from elements in order to guard against confounding them is not only good and reasonable, but altogether necessary. But to divide them so as to make the one exist without the other is absurd. Well, what are you saying, Calvin? Well, I wish I had time here, but you remember when we talked about Christology? Do you remember how the divine is related to the human? Do you remember the Chalcedon little uh, statement, the, the summary statement? Good. Distinct but never separate. He's saying, look, there's a mystery here. They, the, 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 the body of Christ is distinct from the body of Christ on earth as in the divinity and the humanity, but in a way that's never separate. Never separate. So there's communion without losing identity. I mean, again, uh, a marriage, you know, the two become one flesh. That's the mystery, that you're no longer one Two, I mean, you're always now one, but then, but you keep, and you, your distinct personalities, 
I mean, that's a metaphor, but it doesn't get close to this. There's something deeper and more cosmological going on here. Cosmology in this an open universe. Uh, cosmo- we believe as Christians that we are not just materialist. That our cosmology is material, but it's also spiritual. And that somehow there is a conjoining of the two in a manner that is a mystery. But they both exist. God is a spirit. Yeah. yeah. It's the idea that, yes, that's right, that, that we're not in a closed system universe. Yeah. yeah, and that there's revelation, too. That's a term that we often use in the context of do we believe in, in divine revelation? Is, is all the knowledge we can know contained in a closed system called materia- materialism? Or do we believe in a universe that has an open system, i.e. a transcendent, a window of transcendence into it? He did what? That's correct. He continues to give it. And we call that the doctrine of revelation. That's what the scripture is. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. So yeah, that's right. Good. And this same metaphor, I mean, the same aspect of an open system universe applied to knowledge is here applied to substance. There's a sense in which we believe that God can be present here even if he is spiritually present, not materially present. And yet he touches our flesh by virtue of the mystery of the union of Christ by the Holy Spirit to our flesh. So they touch and there is a transfusion by the Spirit that comes between us even if we don't lose our distinct properties materially. A memorial would deny any transfusion whatsoever, conjoining or con, you know, conferring of grace. It's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a sign. It's something we do, and it's a sign. It's, it would it'd be to, to detach the, the thing signified, i.e. The, the presence of Christ and his life-changing power, from the thing that signifies it, which is the visible sun. It'd be to separate those in a way that they don't have a real connection. Yes, back there. Well, it depends which passage you go to, but yeah. Well, there's quite a bit of language that'll be derived from. Let me, I think we're going to get into it. Let's do it. You're, you're looking for scripture, yeah. and that's a good thing to look for. That's what you've been trained to look for, so you should look for it. Good. So let's see if we can find it. Um, first of all, let's, let's, I want to sh- one more thing here just to work this out. How then are the sacraments powerful unto salvation, according to Calvin? Let's, can I read that one, the proper body? So here we go. This proper body and blood of Jesus Christ, how do we receive it? How does it actually come into us? Well, it's, it's going to be through the instrumentality of faith. Received by faith alone. 
So baptism is, is a grace conferred, but it's never fully participated in until it is received by faith. And same with the Lord's Supper. You can partake and taste, but you must believe in order for it to have been received. You see? So faith is the evidence of it being received and the means by which it is received, if you will. Both at the same time. So let's look at this. Uh, I want you to see now that you've read some Calvin, how much our confession is relying upon Calvin. Notice some of the language then. Uh, here we go. Here's our confession. Sacraments are holy signs. That means signs, visible, tangible representations set apart, making them holy by God. That is so weird. My car just started. Maybe it's because of this. Either somebody's stealing it. Don't you leave. That's weird. Thank you. I was sitting here looking at her. I've been going on for a long time. I think it's still off. Well, the car, the, those half-lights are on. I don't know why. Anyway, at least if you want to check it, you may. <laughs> or you can teach this and I'll go check it. Um, so sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Notice the word seals, though. Seals, which means something's being affected here. Immediately instituted by God, that's called positive institution. That is, he decreed it, he ordained it, he, he, he instituted it. That's the key to being a sacrament, by the way. To represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong into the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. There is, notice, this is vital, there is in every sacrament, and we only believe there's two, baptism and Lord's Supper, a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the means and effects of the one are attributed to the other. What that means is whatever this sign represents, there is a real spiritual union or relation that is, there, there, he's trying to speak this Calvin language. It's going to give him more clear when, when we get to it. You'll see. Now the lights are on. Oh, it was running. Okay, now it's off. Good. I'm glad you checked it. Um, so, so let me break this down for you a little bit. Immediate institution, we call that juro divino or divine. It, it's by divine institution. What, what are we saying there? It's not an invention of man. He, it's not an invention of man. This is not something we just dreamed up. It was by command of God that we do it. Do this in remembrance of me. Holy sign, it symbolizes that which is promised. We'll see that. We'll have to go to each sacrament and see what that is. Holy seal, it is in some sense accomplishes that which is promised. Really, a better way to say this is think of a seal signet ring that you are marked with the seal, with the authority of God as belonging to him. It, it sets you apart in a legal sense. But it's more than that. It's also a spiritual relation. That is a means of grace. It's a means of grace. It, it, okay? So what does all this mean exactly? Do the sacraments affect anything insofar as salvation is concerned? Notice then section 3. So we're going to read the next section. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, 
Now, what is he saying there? It's not that the bread saves you or the wine saves you or the water saves you. It's not like there's some magic show going on. Okay, so it's not by um, any power in them, the actual materiality stuff. That's anti-Roman Catholic there. Neither doth the efficacy or power of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. Now they're going to say, look, even if Preston's, uh, the pastor's having a bad day, and even if he's in some gross sin, it's not attached to the person. It's attached to God's promise to the church. And that's important. Whew, boy, I'm glad I got out of that trouble. <laughs> and then it goes on to say, um, but, this is crucial, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept authorizing the use, therefore, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. No, it goes to say, grace is not conferred by any power in them, neither does, etc., etc., etc. So the elements themselves don't have any transforming power in them. Yes, grace is conferred upon the work of the Spirit and the words of institution. In other words, by the means of the spiritual presence of Christ that is uniquely related to the sacraments, the sacraments are powerful to affect that which is being promised. Does this mean that the nature of the power is necessarily exhibited or even necessarily immediately exhibited? No. Again, in the words of our confession, only ordinarily as per the relation of church to salvation. In other words, the sacraments are a means of grace and not the agent of grace. Who's the agent? Holy Spirit, effectual calling. Even as God the Holy Spirit is sovereign. So notice how this works out. I'm just going to zip through this stuff real quickly here, and then we're going to stop. To, I'm trying to get you the doctrine out, if you will. Notice how it all works. Let's, let's look at the holy sign. What does the sign of baptism signify? We're told here, and again, we can look at Scripture in a minute, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. So the key word there is that we're being engrafted into Christ, therefore unto regeneration, remission of sins, giving up to God, etc. The Lord's Supper, what signified? What signified is his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself unto his death. It's, it's directing us to Christ once and for all sacrifice, which is the basis of our assurance of salvation by, received by faith. Okay? So one's focusing us on effectual calling. One's focusing on justification, you could say. As a seal now, notice what happens. In baptism, in grafting into Christ of regeneration, remission of sins, and his giving up into God through Jesus Christ to walk into his life. If that's the sign, then there's a spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified, which is this engrafting stuff. Right? So notice how our confession describes this in baptism. I'm quoting again, 28.6. By the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred. You cannot find a stronger word that is transferred into that person. By the Holy Ghost, to which, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, uh, but who? What's it ultimately predicated upon? According to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. To put that bluntly, 
Salvation, I mean, baptism saves. This salvation now saves you. I'm quoting Peter. He's talking about baptism. This salvation now saves you. But now, do we need a qualification according to what we just read? Yeah, we do. What is it? Not necessarily. It's always predicated on God's divine will, or we could call it divine election. Not necessarily. And not necessarily immediately. It could be something that begins, and in a gradual way, he is brought to a, a saving faith. Which is why we can't confuse baptism with the Lord's Supper and its function. It's, it's, it's initiating the engrafting into Christ. It's visibly engrafting you into the visible body of Christ, wherein there's the full means of grace for this person to receive, etc., etc., etc. Now you're asking me, well, but what happens when an adult becomes a Christian and he hadn't been baptized? Well, same thing as when, when you were in the Old Testament with circumcision. You'd be circumcised, which is entered into or engrafted into the body of Christ. And you and at the same time, you'd be admitted to the Lord's Supper because you're an adult and you have received the Holy Spirit by faith. You see? So it's still functioning, though, to enter you and to renew you, even if an, an adult who's come into contact to the means of grace, i.e. the word, etc., this person's professed to believe in Christ, like I did. I was baptized as an adult, and at the same time I was admitted to the Lord's Supper. But others could be baptized into the church as infants or children, and they are awaiting, though, that, that confirmation that comes when you are developmentally and spiritually of, of, at a place where you can confirm it by saving faith, a credible profession of faith. You see what you're doing? Now we're going to get all that in the language in a minute. But not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. But yes, grace is conferred, but we reserve judgment to confirmation. It's basically saying, look, there is a hose here, and that hose is going to, you, you get baptized, you connect the hose of life to you, and it pumps life into you. But we're going to qualify that with, but, but only according to, how much, to when God wants the water to get pumped. He could pump it immediately, he could pump it not immediately, he could never pump it at all, and you just got the outward sign, that's it. That's why confirmation is so important. Do you see? Yeah. No, regeneration is saving faith. Regeneration is saving faith. That's what happens when you're, that is what saving faith is. That's why we call it effectual calling, because it puts those two together. Well, the faith is the, let's put it that it's not is. Regeneration is that which enables saving faith. But, but they come together. That's the whole point of it. You're, so the word effectual calling, this is exactly why they use that term, by the way effectual calling. That is, someone has given you an invitation, and, and with that invitation is the power that changes your dead nature, that enlivens your nature, gives you new birth, enabling you to believe in Jesus Christ. So it's saving faith. So regeneration. So yes, baptism saves, but we qualify it with, but not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, it all is predicated upon divine election or divine sovereign will. And therefore, we're awaiting, we presume that they are saved, a child. We raise them as Christians. We tell them they're Christians. 
but we tell them they're unconfirmed. We're waiting for you to come of age, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and, be, and, to, and to profess, like Romans chapter, what is it, 10, you must profess with your mouth. He's talking right there about the, 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 the profession of faith, a credible profession of faith, wherein you, you're, wherein you are confirmed and entered into that confirmation renewing right. We're going to get into that in a minute to get into the stuff of when, but that's the gist of what's going on here. So yes, we were going to say so, baptism is a means of grace. It's not just a representation of grace. It's a means of grace. It's a, it's a, yeah. I hope none, but who knows? I mean, I don't know. Not, none that I know of would take an exception to this and, and, and get admitted into this domination. Now, <laughs> to the degree they understand it, I can't speak to that. Hopefully they do. I think getting maybe to what's behind your question, like, why well, haven't I heard this one? It's quite, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but, but, you know, I think sometimes, well, well, I don't know if I, this is a bigger question. I do think our tradition has lost its ecclesiology to some degree. And our attempt in a Christendom and world that's highly influenced by evangelical democratization, individualism, etc., and a world that's been in a kind of reactionary stance to, say, Roman Catholicism, etc., it tends to go like a pendulum. There is, though, a very strong movement back in this direction now. It, you know, you know when, when we, for instance, uh, planted this church, I, I, I was the only one going through assessment center and all that was pre- planning on doing weekly communion. See, I discovered Presbyterianism outside of the South. I'd never, gone to a, I'd never gone to a PC church in my life in the South before I came to this church. Well, I shouldn't say that. I actually did. But the point is, is you know, I, I discovered our tradition not in the practice of it down South. And I'm not putting all the South down, but this shouldn't be in the tape. There's great Southern churches we got to scratch that. <laughs> no, there are great southern churches. I really mean that. But my point is, is I've noticed that the, I noticed that where I discovered it up here, there was a different context. And so this kind of doctrine seems to be more, was more readily discerned. Now, there's a real beautiful movement going on to rediscover the sacramentology of the church in the PCA. Not that it never was there, it was. And I think it was more or less, and all of us better than less. But anyway, I wish I could retract what I said because it didn't come out right. But anyway. Yeah. What do you think I just said? That's what I kept saying, right? Not necessarily, I said, not necessarily, not necessarily immediate. Repeat after me. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, which means not every infant will necessarily, or not every infant will immediately necessarily be born again. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So there's two thoughts there. Not necessarily, and not necessarily immediately. Yeah. That's correct. And they're all predicated upon the divine election. The will of God, which is the way our confession says it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, it's a means of grace. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, it is. The thing, but the, there's, but the thing that I'm wanting to be careful about is the reality of Christ in, with, and through the Word of God is a sacramental union. Even as the there, we we never want to separate word and sacrament. The 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 sacrament is always wordish. And the word is already, always sacramentalish, if I can make up those concepts. That is to say, the one it's all about how Christ relates to the church. So when I'm when when the pastor's preaching a sermon, we believe that we've talked about this already that the sermon becomes alive, the word becomes alive in a very real and mystical sense. That's why we think sermons are so special. There's a real enlivening going on. It's not just a lecture. There's a mystic communion of God in, with, and through His Word that in, that is like, like that is that is uh, efficacious. You know, the idea that the Spirit, the, what is it, that passage in Hebrews, the Word never returns void. There's a real power and presence in the preached Word of God that's beyond just rational. Is my point. It's because there's a mystic union there, and the same thing. The sacrament is always. Uh, worded it's not just you know some (laughs) symbol without words it wouldn't be the sacrament without the words of institution for instance so there is a it's it's like one the church is this three-legged table with with christ the prophet priest and king words sacrament and and in government and the three together make for this holy presence of god that is always, it's not, I mean, imagine Jesus Christ being a priest but not a prophet or a king without a priest. He's always the three, he's always the three together, right? He's a prophet, priest, and king. So if you, would, if you were to meet Jesus on the street, you wouldn't be meeting just a king any day. It's not like he puts on the, oh, I'm a king now. You know, no, I can't, I can't lay hands on you and pray for you. I'm not a priest right now. Yeah. But when he is a priest, he is going to do it with the authority of a king. And when he is a king, he's going to do it with the words of a prophet. So that's the only thing I would add to that, but you're, but otherwise it's a very good example. You know, but just keep in mind that there is a you know, that that there's one person we're talking about here. Ultimately what we're talking about is how is it that Jesus is present in the church? Cuz if you encounter Jesus, all this language makes sense. If you were to meet Jesus on, on a road, man, you just encountered power. You didn't just encounter a rationalistic system of beliefs that he's going to dictate to you. You just, man, he touches you, man, and you're going to be changed, right? 
So that's what's happening when you come to the church. So remember, all of this is in the context of, our, of, of this doctrine of the church, the body of Christ, as our prophet, priest, and king. So the word is, is preached sacramentally. The sacraments are practiced uh, didactically or wordy, and all of which are under and, and in the authority of Christ exercised through the mediatorial presence of his kingship through the government of the church. Today we just met with someone and admitted her to the communion table. She will then come to the communion table and partake of that table. And get the and grace will be conferred to her, even as that grace is conferred to her as defined by words, words of institution, prophet, priest, and king all together. So how do you define a church? You see? You define it by the presence of Jesus. Oh where is the presence of Jesus in a way that is decreed of God to be present? Oh, it's where the apostolic, prophetic, priestly, kingly structures are in place. The three legs of the table. Any one leg, the church is no longer a church. Even if it has many good things going on in it. Does that make sense? But yes. So the word, you can say, you can say it's about everything. I can also say that about the, uh, I mean, we don't talk about that. We, we're going to, but the discipline and uh, shepherding oversight of the church. There is real grace conferred through that. But not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. Like I said, people can reject it. Only by the Holy Spirit does any of this. Nothing here is going to happen except for the Holy Spirit. It's just dead as a doorknob without the Holy Spirit. But these are the instruments through which... So another way to put it is if one tradition, let's say the Baptist tradition, doesn't believe in any means of grace in the church... It's only a memorial. It's only a didactic sort of thing, teaching thing. And if the other believes that the church is the agent of grace, as if the church is synonymous with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we believe that the church is a means of grace, wherein the Holy Spirit being the agent of grace transfuses the life of Christ into the body of Christ by virtue of this mystic communion. And it is a mystery. And we're okay with that. It's not something I can get my head around. And that's good. I affirm it. What do you think? Y'all with me? Us? It? You know, I was looking for scriptures. I can't believe that um, I didn't put anything here. So that's pretty pathetic. It must be something, a big mistake. So let me, let me turn you to some passages here. Um, actually, I think it's going to come up later. But anyway, someone turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And let's look at that. We have a lot more to cover here, so I need to do this pretty quickly, but I think I need to do that. So 1 uh, Corinthians 10, and um, I'm going to just read this, com this part in, uh, let me find the exact verse here. Look at verse uh, 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. He's talking about fleeing idolatry, repent. And I speak as to sensible people, as invisible, whatever. Judge for yourselves the cup of blessing. No, just there, it's a cup of blessing. That's a curious way to describe it. Not wine, blessing. As in something's in it beyond the wine. This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia? Now that word, koinonia, you can't possibly it would be to abuse this word to the point of ridiculous 
it means to partake of, to participate, to in some manner beyond remembering it or some manner beyond, it's, it's somehow there is a participation going on with the blessing that's in the cup. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. How do you read that? So the sign and the thing signified, the sign is the bread. The thing signified is the body of Christ. And there's a spiritual relation efficaciously to transfuse or to conjoin or to somehow we partake of the body of Christ. And that's, I mean, that's just literally right here in front of you. It'd be, it, I don't know how else to read it, except that we would do all kinds of distortions of it. So there it is. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. There's a spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. There's a spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified that we, enables us to partake. Now listen to what goes on here. This is really cool. Because there is one bread, now hold it, I thought he was just talking about the body of Christ, right? Right. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We all partake of Christ, therefore we are now the body of Christ, one body. You see how closely related or united now the church body and the, the Christ body is now conjoined together so that in partaking of the table we are both partaking together with one another as one body as we are partaking of Christ in his body so this is the kind of language that you see and you go whoa there's something going on here um, and then you can go on um, there's some scriptures I think when we get to the issue of baptism oh there's all those scriptures I knew it had to be there Look on page three at the very top. There's all your scriptures, okay? Um, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time where, let's read, um, someone look up, I'm just going to get you to read some things real quickly. Titus 3, 25, who got that for me? Somebody? Raise your hand. Thank you. Someone, 1 Peter 3, 21, who's got that? Raise your hand. Thank you. Uh, I don't know, there's so much here. Um, uh, let's do uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Who's going to get that one? Thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and read that. When you get it, just start screaming it. Now, what's this washing of regeneration or renewal of the Holy Spirit? The washing. That's baptismo. I mean, that's the, literally to wash, to baptize. By the baptism of the, of the water and the Holy Spirit. There's a un union going on there. Okay? We would look at that and want to spiritualize it. But why would we do that? Why? Let's go to some other passages. Next. Now, that's almost identical to what we just read. The word's the same in the Greek. The idea baptism, which corresponds to this, what, what's the this, by the way? Before it. 
Isn't that where he talks about the flood or something like that? Yeah. yeah. So he's referring to a, an event that, that was a drowning ceremony. <laughs> it's a, now becoming a drowning ceremony. Remembering the baptism of Noah. Wherein, through the water, he received a new life. And so everyone must pass through a judgment ordeal. The, the knife of circumcision and the water of Noah's flood were both symbols of judgment. And yet to pass through those waters by faith in God as ministered to us through the head of our, of our covenant, Noah and Christ, as a type of Christ, we are now saved. You see what he's saying? Now this baptism saves you, though. Now, we could say, oh, he don't mean that literally. Why? But we're going to put the qualification. Don't worry. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. You know, because that's going to be elsewhere. But yeah, it's a means of grace is what we're saying. It's just like this word saves you. Like what Gary said. You could say this, this word saves you. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. But it saves you. It's got the power to save you. Because of the union of Christ with his word. The sacrament's the same thing. The union of Christ with the sacrament. He's not just a prophet. We in Western Christianity have tended to reduce Christ to being a prophet only. He's also a priest, handling the mystery of the presence of Christ. And he's a king, authorizing things and ordering things and ruling things through this church. Okay, next. Mm-hmm. Now, see what he's talking about. He said, man, weren't you baptized? Well, don't you understand what that, that, what, what that means? That if, in fact, the grace conferred through baptism as promised is, in fact, your grace by, received by faith, then, man, you're a new creature. <laughs> Something's happened to you more than just a mental transformation, right? It's not just a mental thing that happened to you. He's talking about his, they're different people now. This is pretty powerful language. Now let's go to the sacraments of, of Lord's Supper. Next clause. I knew I had it in here somewhere. You see under the Lord's Supper? Um, someone read, turn to chapter 6 of John. We've already read the 1 Corinthians 10 language. This is what I was referring you to. John 6. Listen to the language here. It's pretty amazing. And God, I just, oh, I just would give anything if I had a chance to just preach through the whole book right now to you. But remember, everything about John is, a, is introduced with the word became flesh and what? Templed among us. So his theology of Christology is a temple Christology. And everything you're going to go to, all the I am statements are done where? In a temple ceremony. And at the end of the book, he's going to institute the great commission and words that are very different from Matthew. Instead of go ye therefore in all the world making disciples of... And remember, it does say baptizing them, which means evidently that was an essential element of making a disciple. But he's going to say, contrary to our evangelical world, it says play a little player and you're a Christian. No, you're not a Christian until you get baptized. Not according to the Great Commission. Why? Because there's something going on in baptism here. At least not ordinarily. You know, again, we keep saying that, right? But over here now with, with John, it's a very different kind of commission. What you're about to read is going to end up with John saying, okay, therefore, as the Father sent me, I send you the church. How did he send you? 
the Father. How did he send Jesus to be our temple in the world? So you be the temple in the world. You know what he's going to do right after that? He's going to give the temple, he's going to go through exactly the temple worship with those, with those disciples. Right after chapter 20, verse 21, he's going to go and start instituting the temple, the priestly language of, of, of putting the grace of God on, on, on the people of the nations. But we're going to get that in a minute. Read chapter 6, let's do 51, then 55 through 56, and then 63. Who got that for me? I'm talking so fast, I know. Stop. What did he just tell you to eat? Yeah. Him. Good. Go on. Now, you know what? How are you reading that other than this being the institution of the Lord's Supper, which he's going to go on to do? He's using the exact language that Christ uses in the other Gospels for the institution of the Lord's Supper. Okay, keep going. 56, 63. <laughs> so that's, John, that's John's version of, of the institution of, of the uh, Lord's Supper. And he's going to return to it later, by the way, in these same words where he institutes it. So you put that together with 1 Corinthians and all these other passages. Yeah, there's a real conferring grace going on in the sacramental nature. But don't you understand, this is not just about what happens at a five-minute or 20-minute segment of our service. This is defining the church. This is why, I mean, honestly, this is why I've given my life to the church and, and think it's the best idea in the world. You know, um, just today I was writing on a BOH correspondence, all the pastors, and they're all overwhelmed, and we were talking, and I, and I kind of encouraged them. I tried to say there's one guy that's thinking about pulling out because he's just overwhelmed, and, and I said, you know, I, I really understand that, that struggle. She didn't need to do that, but thank you. Yeah. She's such a good man. Um, you, know, I, you know, I was saying, you know, but, but at the end of the day, and, and, you know, people know me here in the city, know that I've done this. I've been very loath to get involved hardly in anything except just what is distinctively ecclesial. There's a thousand little things that pastors can be doing out there. And why is that? And I'm just being honest with you for a moment. Maybe it translates to you. I mean, Lisa can attest. I just, because I, I can't even do this enough, the church. And I don't think there's any other institution in the world that can claim what we're talking about here. This is, this is unique. This is real. Upon this church, I, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will prevail against it. Binding and loosing. Man, that's big stuff. <laughs> this is power. And that's why what you do, being here, training to be leaders, I'm, I'm preaching right now, you do know that. But that's why you're, it's so important. Because really, this is, we're talking some serious, in other words, the church is not just a kind of add-on. It is a soteriological, that is, a salvation event. To partake and, and participate in, and to do, the th do, to do church is a salvific event. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. But ordinarily. And you just got to keep saying that. Unless we get into some really messy stuff on either side. All right, so we've got about uh, no minutes. I don't know. Let's see what we got here. Yeah, we got about 10 minutes. Um, any questions? And then I'm going to just really show you a few things that has to be shown because we didn't get to it. I'm going to get into sacramental practice, which is really important. But any question you have right now? I mean, it's all right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. Yeah, that's right. You got to interpret scripture with scripture, like we learned yesterday or this Sunday, I believe, in our hermeneutics class at Sunday school. You interpret scripture with scripture. So yeah, it's not the only place that God talks about this stuff. And you've got to look at other places he's talked about it. And clearly, one must be born again. And clearly, being born again is related to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit that comes and goes as he pleases, like the wind. You see, that's an example. So we, we baptize because it's a real means of grace. We think something's happening here. But we must, and this is getting to the practice, also practice the Lord's Supper as a distinct event, not the same event. This is why there's been a movement. You know, parents want their children to have the full benefits of grace. Amen. So therefore, they're in a big, big, big hurry to get their kids confirmed into in the Lord's Supper. And that's not necessarily a good idea at all because you might, in effect, supplant the power of the Lord's Supper which is what Christ, Paul says, many of you have died, i.e., to, to, to not practice the Lord's Supper in a lawful manner is to actually kill yourself. As in, I don't think he means necessarily that you just went and dead, although that could happen. He's saying that you're going to lose the power of it if you do it without discerning the Lord's body, he's going to say. So we're going to get into it. Notice what's going to happen under practice. I'm on page three now, part two. Um. I'm not going to do this one. I'm going to let you read it. One big question then is, the first question I ask is, who then is authorized to administer the sacraments and what biblical rationale can be given for this? And we're going to say, basically, the church and only the church. Therefore, I was wrong when I administered the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to my wife when I, when I proposed to her. Great, great, cons, great intents, but I was just flat out wrong. Thankfully, that's about where it stopped. I don't think I ever did it since then. <laughs> And if I were to baptize my kids in the bathtub, I would be wrong. I don't care if I'm a pastor because the church isn't doing it. I am. Okay? So the question is then, well, then what about Roman Catholic Church? Is there, this is a good little taste cutter. Is the Roman Catholic Church a church? And you'll see that we, we concur that it is. Being a church that is, we think, humbly, has many significant errors such that it could significantly reduce the, the efficacy and the power of the church— and, and the means of grace that it has doesn't mean it doesn't have, it isn't a church at all. And we believe it is a church. Um, we do have some major problems with it, but it is a church. And there are many things about it that are really good, by the way. I mean, I, I sat there and watched the, uh, the, 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 uh, the just Scalia's rerun, you know, I watched the, the, the sac the, uh, those funeral service about, I'd say 90% of it. I said, wow, that was great. About 10% of us said, ah, can't go there. But that's okay. I, I, probably, I probably share more with that service than I would maybe some of the memorial services. See, but we're, we seem to be biased towards this side and not that side. So we just got to be careful, be gracious. But this will help you understand a policy that the session made about 15 years ago. Uh, and it's in our minutes, what, 2003? That's about, yeah. And um, so this, this is basically the rationale for why we said if someone comes here and they've been baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, we'll accept that. But we might do some discipleship to help them understand some other things about justification, et cetera, that we want to clarify. Now, who are the recipients? We're going to say those who are baptized in the context of visible church that is defined by the apostolic marks of a, of a true church should be, uh, you know, are all believers and their children. You, know, why we, you heard a, a nice little defense for that this Sunday, by the way. 
we're actually going to put it on the website and just have it sitting there because we just needed to put it somewhere. But it's not only those who profess faith, but their children. Why is that? And I give you the logic here. I mean, in the first place, it's a family. The church is a family. It's called a family. I don't know about you, but there's nowhere in Scripture where families are defined and the children aren't part of it. So if it's the family of God, then children are members of the family. And what does baptism do? It, rep- it engrafts you into the, to the family of God. It enters you in. It's how you enter. It's, the, it's, the, it's that which engrafts you into the body of Christ. But there's a lot of other reasons why we do it. We do it because of the, uh, we see household baptisms. And what's curious about that is not that, that anybody can tell you who's, how, what the age are they are. It's just, it's, un, it's unqualified. It always focuses on the faith of the head of the household and everybody else in this household gets baptized. Under that day, the head, in this case the, the male patriarch, had jurisdiction over his family and therefore when he became a Christian, the whole family came under the jurisdiction of the God he converted to. And therefore, they're all uh, baptized. Even the wife, she's called hagios, holy, of an, uh, an unbelieving wife would be baptized, or an unbelieving spouse could be baptized into, under the authority, if, if it was a wife. You see? Even if you're awaiting, confirm, you know, the Lord's Supper, though, would not be delivered to these people, according to what we're going to say in Corinthians 11. Now, I wouldn't baptize a wife today if a husband gets baptized, it's a different system. So, no, we wouldn't baptize wives today against their... If we wouldn't, they wouldn't have done it in their day. So let me clarify. <laughs> yeah, I should clarify. A, a, a person of an age of discernment who is consciously rejecting Christ would not ever be baptized because they have now rejected being a part of the body of Christ. So let me make that clear. I'm going too fast here, aren't I? Or looking at me with the dates, look. <laughs> Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time here because there's one other thing I want to get at. Um, there's a, there's, we call it the hermeneutic principle of continuity. Um, there is, all throughout the New Testament, a relation of circumcision to baptism. As in, just as the Lord's Supper replaced the sacrifice of the temple, so baptism replaces the, the, uh, the entrance of the uh, sign of the circumcision. They mean the same thing. Circumcision, remember, is a knife. Baptism is the water of judgment. They're both as you're, you're coming under the judgment of God in baptism or in the circumcision. And yet in faith, you pass through that judgment and your sin is put to death and your new life is, is, emerges. You come from an old to a new. Um, we see the language, all the language of saving. In other words, the logic of baptism. Who do we, who do we, who do we baptize? Well, those who we want to be Christians. Except, that the, except for an adult who would reject it. You see what I mean? So if you're under the jurisdiction of a, of a family, of, a, of at least one believer who's a member of a church and you're a child, insofar, though, as the, as the, the, family, as the parent is going to raise that child in the, you know, the means of grace of the church, we will baptize them if they're members in good standing of the church. People come off the street all the time, can you baptize my kid? No, I can't. you got to understand, baptism isn't just for... You know, I, well, I'm, you know, do you go to church? No. Well, then I can't baptize your kid because your kid is not being, in, your child is not a member of this, of this church. And only members of this church can be baptized. So if you want us to baptize your child, I, I say this in a much more gracious way, but if you want us to baptize your child, then you need to become a member of this church. Now, how are you going to become a member of the church? Well, you're going to, as an adult, have to profess faith in Christ. 
if you haven't already. And we're going to have to examine that and do the process. You see what I mean? Why? Because we're not going to just make a mockery of this. There is no power in baptism if it's not being engrafted into the body of Christ where there's a meaningful participation of Christ vis-a-vis the means of grace. See what's going on? Any questions? So just look over that, see if that helps you argue. Um, the, the other thing, um, well, the, the next big issue that's confronted us recently is the issue of pedo communion. And I put some stuff here about that, but the gist of it is, I think I've already mentioned it since we're out of time. You can read it, but, but the idea is, and it comes ironically with some of the more reformed, kind of hyper-reformed types of people that are not really reformed, in my opinion, about this, but, but there's a whole tradition. I mean, Augustine didn't do it all, all kinds, but the bottom line is, is, again, a confusion. If the Baptists kind of confuse baptism with the Lord's Supper on that end, as in waiting for both of them until they can profess faith in Christ, this hyper-reformed or hyper-whatever-you-want-to-call-it confuses baptism, the function of baptism the Lord's Supper, on the other exact opposite end, where now the Lord's Supper is by virtue of a covenant relationship with the church through the... Fu- you see what I mean? So the Baptists say, well, we, we're going to practice uh, baptism the way we practice the Lord's Supper i.e. you're admitted to baptism by a credible profession of faith. That's what your classic Baptist will say. They've confused the two functions to become one function, conversion, through profession of faith. This hyper-reformed, if you will, group over here is going to confuse, again, the function of baptism in the Lord's Supper, but they're going to do it by emphasizing what? That, that it's a covenantal right of, of, of privilege to have both the moment you become a covenant member of the church, as, which is as a child. Do you, did you hear that? Do you understand what's going on? That's why in your first question in your roundtable I asked you, what is the function? I wanted you to get thinking about what's the function of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We're going to say baptism is a converting rite or an entrance rite. We're going to say the Lord's Supper is a renewal rite. This begins your salvation story by entering you into the presence of Christ based on a covenantal relationship under the jurisdiction of the family head. It's a covenant responsibility to do it. You're a covenant child, in other words. This is something that must happen only after you've, you've come of age in a manner that you are, can be self, you can discern for yourself your original sin, I, not just sins. It's not enough for you to come and say, do you believe you sin? Yes. Well, how? Well, because I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting, uh, I, I lust over a bicycle. Well, okay, but why in the he- I mean, I want to know, have you, what does that mean to you that you're lusting over a bicycle that would get you back to the, what's the real sin problem, which is what? You're rejecting God. And this is one of the concerns, I'm, I'm saying this very clearly because I've met with children and they'll come in and I'll say, well, do you believe you sin? Yeah. Well, how do you sin? Well, um, you know, my mommy told me not to have a, a, uh, some cereal, and I went and got some cereal the other day and robbed it. And that's a sin. Okay, she dis- he disobeyed his parents. But, but in talking to this child, it becomes very evident this child is clueless about the, the, synth- the gravitas of, of, of rejecting Christ in that. I mean, they're beginning to learn that there's something wrong with me because <laughs> I rejected my mom. 
And they know it's bad. They feel guilty. But this person's going to be mis, I think, really mis-stewarded uh, if we just right there say, yep, you got it. And they're not going to, I mean, are you discerning what happened on that cross for them? Are they discerning that, that their original sin, that when I say original sin, you know what I mean. I don't mean it's, it's, the, fir- it's the first level sin that, that, that creates all other sins, which is rejecting God. It's the sin of Adam and Eve that happens to every one of us. And, and at some point, a child will come to the time when they are self-aware enough. That's a developmental concept. They are self-aware. They can, they can get on a balcony and look at themselves. That's not something you can do just immediately. And as they discern themselves, they discern the Lord's body for them. They say, yes, I need a substitute under the wrath of God. Otherwise, this whole thing's nonsensical. Really, do you think God is such a... I mean, I mean think about what this is saying. This is, this is another way to think about it. Would you... Um, what would it say about God that he's willing to put someone into everlasting hell because he wants a bicycle? What would you say? Huh? I'd say... Get a life, God. <laughs> I'd say, God, come on. I mean, really? Aren't you bigger than that? Can't you give it? I mean, come on. It's a little kid here, God. I mean, come on. How could you possibly? What kind of God would that be, really? A capricious? I don't know, man. That's, I mean, that's crazy. And that, what else would a child think if that's the only thing that they were contemplating when they were contemplating coming to the Lord's Supper? What they've got to do at some point is make the connection between, yeah, I'm lusting after that bike, but that bike is just a tip of an iceberg of something about me that is rebellious at the very heart of my soul, that is, is wanting to be my own God or going after other false gods. And it takes some time sometimes for that to happen, for someone to discern that yes, I am a sinner. I, with Adam, rejected God and his authority in my life. And I need to turn away from that disposition and put my hope and faith in God again for salvation. You see, you see the difference. Otherwise, what we're doing is, and I've seen it so many times, I have people come to this church, I'm, I'm going to say about 20 or 30% of the time, who've been members in good standing of a church for a long time, but do not have assurance of salvation. I'd say it's about 15 to 20 percent time, at least. People come here, and one of the first things I talk about is, you know, you've been if you've been here, you know, I'd ask, if you t- met me, I ask you every time, do you really experience God's assurance for salvation? And if you came into this with this sort of never having been asked to, to deal with that because of the way you were admitted to the Lord's Supper, then you've never resolved your assurance question, and that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Remember, confirmation, assurance. So that's what we talk about in this last section here. I haven't had a chance to walk you through it. I show it to you in our confession. It's very clearly stated there. It's, uh, I talk about what it means to examine yourself, what it means to examine oneself in light of and to discern the Lord's body. I know that's a phrase that a lot of you probably read and go, I'm not sure what that means. I, I pretty much discerned it right there. It means that you discern yourself as warranted 
on that cross, and Christ has taken your substitute. You've discerned the gravity of your sin to the extent, you don't have to have a theologically profound way of saying it. We're not asking kids to do that. But you must discern the sense that there's something bigger going on here than that I want cookies that my mom doesn't want me to have. You've got to discern that it's... It, it, so one of the ways I'll ask the question, and I may have asked some of you, is do you think God is justified in, in condemning you to everlasting hell? Do you think God is justified in that? And if you can't say that, you haven't yet discerned what happened to Christ for you. Yeah, he is. Well, what did you do that was so horrible that that would be legitimate? Well, I rejected God. That's right. You rejected life and the source of life. It's a big deal to do that. But otherwise, these poor people think, I mean, no wonder people are rejecting God at the age of 18 when they go to college and they go, wow, God's just a, you know, he's an ass. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, that's what you've got to be thinking here. He's just an ass. <laughs> and we want to say, no, you know, it's something much deeper and you need to see it. All right, any questions? I'm a little, I'm sorry, a little late, but I had to get that one in. You have any questions, really? You can leave right now if you want, but I want to at least give you a chance to ask questions. I haven't, because we kind of hadn't done that last second half. Y'all understand the sacraments? Yep. But we do believe in a spiritual and real presence of Christ. I call it in, with, and through the signs that are spiritually in relationship to the thing signified, which is Christ's presence. So we believe he's there. And if he's there, there's power. And there's a and you can go back to those quotes that we use with Calvin. You can go back to our statements from the West Wind. There is grace being conferred. Somehow in the mystery of it, it edifies us. It strengthens us it perseveres us it it is transforming us in a very real way not in just a intellectual way although that too yeah it's spiritual yeah i don't think that my organic nature is changed when i eat the meal that with christ i don't think i'm eating any of jesus's organic body but i am eating christ spiritually and that's real. See, that's hard to hear because we are so materialistic in our world that we think the only science is material science. And it's not. You know, the first science was theology. It's amazing that we don't even know that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that a real question? I thought that was more rhetorical. But if it's a question, I would no. I would say the answer to the question would be that it's an over. I think there's been a lot of overreactionary uh, theology going on. In other words, in order not to be sacerdotal, as he said, or fall prey to this sort of false assurance that just being baptized necessarily means you're saved we've reacted to it in a manner that says well 
but there is no salvation. You know, baptism doesn't save a person. And we're going to say, no, it does save a person, but not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. We've got to get more discerning here. And so I think, I think that's part of it. That we, but the other part of it, uh, Bill, is that, I mean, just, again, I keep referring to this, the soup that we swim in. You and I are living in one of the most amazing centuries, or centuries plural, of post-enlightenment thinking, mm-hmm. where we can't imagine how powerful the ideas of the Enlightenment that are acidic to any notion whatsoever of supernatural. We've been reduced to only natural. So there is no category in our little Enlightenment heads for super-national. You say we just don't have that in our categories. And so I think we're just swimming in a world that says, the. I mean, what is a fact? What is a fact? I will guarantee you that most of us instinctually would say faith is not a fact. We would say spiritual God is not a fact. God, spirit's not a fact. Uh, any kind of doctrine like that. We're going to say, no, that's not a fact. Faith is not a fact. And we're going to say, why is that? Well, because faith can't be put in a reproducible experiment. We can't do the three rules of the, of the modern, scientific, materialist-focused kind of fact. So either we would want a historical fact, or we want a modern science, or what I, you know, a, 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 a positivist fact, which is there's positivist, evidentialist basis for that, for that being a fact. And we've got to understand that for... for what, 1,700 years since Christ, fact would have never been interpreted that way. A miracle was a fact. You see, and, we can, and that's fine because our worldview was such that we had spirit in it. And so now, I mean, it's just hard to imagine. We'd like to pick on Descartes and Kant and a lot of these guys were Christians who were trying to come up with ways to argue for God in a world that was losing spirituality. So I do appreciate, I wouldn't be surprised if I go to heaven and Immanuel Kant's there. I mean, this guy was trying to save faith by basically taking fact out of faith. And so he's probably a pretty cool guy. I think he was, I think it was a horrible strategy to get on the playing field of modernity in order to, to build, to build faith. So that's why we're, we talked about this under our general revelation, but we talk about presuppositionalism. See, what I just did to you in my answer was presuppositional. I went back and said, hold it. Can you prove there is no God? Can you prove there is no faith? I mean, again, there's a, it's a classic example. I've probably said it before, but a great philosopher, Alvin Planick, went to a philosopher's conference and in, uh, to talk about this whole idea of God, and he stood up and he said this. And it was, it was the shortest lecture that anybody had ever given in the history of a conference, I'm sure. He literally stood up and he says, I pray to God. Therefore, there is a God. And he sat down. Now, of course, he did that very intentionally to try to push the button of this evidentialist-based philosophy that wants to come at us and say, no, we've got to use, we're going to have to use the, the rules of positivism or historicism in order to prove God. And he's going to say, no, I don't. And you use now your rules of positivism and your rules of historicism to disprove what I just said. And if you can do it, then I guess I'll have to come back and say something else. But if you can't do it, if, he's gonna, if he stands and says, I don't care what you say, I pray every day. 
I do pray. I pray every day. And I pray because there's a God, and I know there's a God. So, fact. <laughs> there's a God. And the positivists can't argue against that. You can't put that prayer in a test tube. And the historicists can't argue against that. So therefore, you have no basis for discrediting that as an argument. And that was his point. There's a lot of things we do, and there's a lot of things we know that can't be by a positivist design or evidentialist criteria. By evidentialist, I mean you know materialist evidence, uh, reproducible and all that stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that we know that we know we know it. And I don't care what you say, I know it. I mean, I know I love my family. Why? Because I know, without a doubt, I'd die for them. That's about as real as it gets. I don't know how much more real it could be, but I would die in a heartbeat. Wouldn't even think twice about it. And I know every parent here would do the same. Now, I know I love my kids, and yet there's nothing about love that can be proven. So I'm, I know it was a lot, but that's why I think we have such a hard time with it. We have bought into the post-enlightenment, positivist, materialist worldview that is unsubstantiated, but it's there. And so Calvin is a great example where it, there's a great, I didn't have the quote in here unless I do it later, a guy named Nicholson, again, was, was asking the question, where did the church move away from the, there's a big debate between Nevin and Hodge in the 19th century and there's a historian analyzing that debate, and he basically says, isn't it interesting that all those who continued to use Calvin as their text for systematic theology in the seminaries lined up with Nevin? All those who ceased to use Calvin and used instead, uh, not Tertullian, who's the, the scholastic? Turretin. Turretin, yes, couldn't get it out. Turretin. Um, Turretin was a scholastic reformed thinker, and he, he put a, a kind of rationalistic grid upon reformed faith. He was a very orthodox person, don't get me wrong. But it was interesting that the schools that would begun to use him found themselves aligning with Hodge. Hodge, who was, I think, an amazingly sanctified and pietistic man, conceded, and this is amazing for Hodge, Charles Hodge to concede this, he conceded that, that Nevin was more Calvinistic than him that he admitted that what Nevin was talking about in this debate was Calvin's doctrine of sacrament. And, and so it's just, so, so this, that kind of explains why I gave you that long explanation to your question, that, that what's really going on here is we are, we are products of our, of our age. We are living in an enlightenment age, and we are so swimming in the worldviews and the assumptions that even our definition of fact has changed. So, fact. God is present in the Lord's Supper. It's a fact. Yeah? And tell us why. I mean, I, I look, yeah, but that. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Good for you, man. That is a good book. All right, any other questions? Again, y'all can, we, we're going 20 minutes later than we almost ever have right now, so I can say that, but I'm having fun. You're having fun, I hope. Thank you for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is 